You're listening to The Maastricht Diplomat. Welcome back, everybody. We are releasing this episode on the 24th of February, exactly one year after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. While this escalation happened a year ago, this conflict goes back to 2014 and has been going on since then, especially in the east of the country. Today, we wanted to talk about how this escalation affected Ukraine, its current condition, but also how the EU and its member states reacted to the Russian invasion, how that reaction affected Russia, affected Ukraine, and affected the EU itself. And within this conversation, we'd then take a step back and look at how this is part of a larger trend in the EU's reaction towards various crises or the general geopoliticization of the EU and the increased importance of large geoeconomic strategies that may go against what the EU says are its values. And joining us in this conversation are Anna Heron Serralis, an Associate Professor of International Relations and Political Science at FASOS. Her research focuses on EU external energy policy and global energy governance with a focus on the relationship between energy, security and democracy. And once again, we have with us Giselle Bossa, Associate Professor in EU External Relations and Jean Monnet Chair at FASOS. Her research focuses on EU policies in the post-Soviet area, the European neighborhood policy and the Eastern Partnership, with a particular emphasis on Belarus and Ukraine and EU-Russia relations. And without further ado, let's get the conversation started. Welcome, Giselle and Anna. It's very nice to have you with us today in this episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Seeing that this episode is being released exactly one year after uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, maybe you can start, start us off with a bit of an overview on the, the current situation in Ukraine. Yeah, now it goes without saying that the situation is very serious indeed, especially the humanitarian situation. At the moment, it's uh, almost impossible to de determine precisely the number of civilian deaths, the number of military deaths. We have estimates from various sources that certainly above 40,000 civilians are likely to have been killed uh, in the conflict. Uh, but these are estimates. Uh, most likely the number is much higher. Uh, in Mariupol alone, uh, we expect about yeah, 25,000 civilians that may have been killed. Uh, so uh, at the moment, that is very hard to say. And also in terms of the uh, military deaths, there's very hard to know uh, how many soldiers have died. Uh, we have estimates for Ukrainian soldiers between 60,000 and 100,000 soldiers. Um, on the Russian side, estimates um, higher than this. Um, now estimates between 90,000 and 150,000. Uh, so the, the effects, uh, the humanitarian effects uh, have been massive, uh, especially also considering that uh, there are probably going to be many more deaths that, that are very difficult to document, um, and also uh, people injured, of course, uh, people missing. On top of that, uh, there's a massive refugee crisis with uh, about 8 million Ukrainians who fled the country, had to flee the country, and uh, 8 million internally displaced. Also, again, these numbers are likely to be higher uh, than what is recorded officially, but still this makes uh, about 16 
million people displaced uh, in one way or another, uh, which is the most massive refugee crisis we've had in Europe since the Second World War. Um, and of course, the damage to, to housing, to residential buildings, to roads, railways, there's like estimated, uh, estimates of 100 billion US dollar uh, damage so far. Uh, although if you can put that uh, any number on it, uh, agricultural land destroyed, mines everywhere. I mean, we could go on, um, productive capacities destroyed, especially, of course, also important facilities uh, such as sanitation, waste management. So that's also, of course, causing serious health risks. We have about 5 million Ukrainians without or only with limited access to water, drinking water. That's also very serious. And we, the destruction of the facilities like refineries, pipelines, soil polluted uh, through shelling, but also toxic substances, toxic gases. Uh, so also the, the health risks are extremely serious in many um, areas of Ukraine, also across the border. And then at the same time, uh, of course, we see other environmental damage, ecosystems. I mean, Ukraine had many also nature reserves. I mean, uh, that's that's all uh, jeopardized. At the same time, yeah, school, uh, also for children, uh, massive impact goes without saying about five million children, at least, where a school has been disrupted in one way or another. But you can imagine if the country is at war, I think uh, we're talking already about lost generations due to the war. And last but not least, of course, the effects of the agriculture and food supplies crisis that we see the effects also felt in the developing world, especially also in North Africa or elsewhere, uh, because of Ukraine uh, used to supply about 9% of the world's wheat trade. Uh, that is that is a lot. Uh, and uh, that has now, maybe now we are about 30% of what Ukraine used to export in terms of wheat alone. I mean, there's also other crops. Um, uh, of 30% in 2022 of what they used to sell back in 2021. So that's massive reduction. That has an impact um, uh, yeah, pretty much around the world, especially in development countries. And not to be underestimated that about 40% of uh, agricultural land in Ukraine, if not more, it can't be used because of landmines. Um, and also cluster ammunition uh, that, that has been thrown. So situation is very serious indeed. Yeah, no, indeed. Uh, and uh, the humanitarian situation is uh, particularly critical also because of the destruction of the energy infrastructure, because uh, we um, need to remember that since October last year, Russia has been systematically destroying uh, Ukraine's energy infrastructure with missiles uh, and drones. Uh, its power stations, uh, transmission lines, its gas pipelines, some nuclear plants also have been occupied and disconnected from the grid as um, yeah, the Zaporizhia station. So the situation now is that between 40% and, 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 and half of the country's energy infrastructure is literally down, uh, which means that, uh, as Giselle mentioned, millions of Ukrainian civilians are left without electricity, without heat, without water for extended period of time. So since the country has only the, the capacity to supply about 30% of the demand, that also means that in regions that are not in the core of the hostilities also do have to go through uh, systematic power cuts. Uh, so that means that buildings, businesses, uh, schools, hospitals do have to to go through that. And uh, it is uh, very difficult to repair those, um, those uh, damaged infrastructures. 
um, the EU and, and Western countries are trying to supply these spare parts for transformers, but it remains an immense challenge, uh, particularly because there is a global supply shortage of these materials and shipping them might take months. And when they are repaired, um, yeah, Russia attacks them uh, again. Uh, so because this is part of Russian tactics to obtain what the Russian army has not been able to obtain in the battleground. Uh, so it's trying to make large parts of the country just inhabitable, continue forcing people uh, out of their homes, as um, Giselle mentioned. So that uh, adds to the long list of Russian violations of international law and the laws of war, because it's targeting the basic human survival and, and subsistence. So that's the situation as we have it now. It's a somber reminder of the situation in Ukraine and also the realities of war. To bring us to our topic for today, you know, we wanted to contextualize what what the situation is, but also in order to better understand where we are and where we're going, at least in terms of trends, could you maybe give us a contextualization of uh, the EU's position towards Russia and Ukraine? What was the relationship before the invasion vis-a-vis the EU and Ukraine and Russia? Now, what's uh, the before? I think when we started 2014, uh, that is uh, would be when when many would now say that is the start of the war. Uh, that was the first uh, Russian incursion into Ukraine, um, with the annexation of Crimea, uh, with the war in the eastern part of Ukraine in the Donbas. Uh, but of course, uh, here the reaction of the member states has been much more limited when we compare to the reaction in 2022. Um, from before 2014, uh, when the EU first made a policy towards or designed a policy towards, say, Eastern Europe or countries in Eastern Europe like Ukraine, Moldova um, and Belarus, uh, but also Georgia, uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia, that became in 2009 known as the EU's Eastern Partnership. Um, that was a, a policy that started, or say, in 2004, back in 2004. It was a policy designed to overcome the hard borders that had emerged with the EU's eastward enlargement or enlargement to Central and Eastern Europe, like to Poland and uh, Czech Republic, etc. Um, and uh, that policy was, in fact, one could argue, not very geopolitical to start with although there are various opinions, but it could be argued well as a policy uh, that was meant to overcome these hard borders for cross-border cooperation, but also to have an alternative to enlargement because there was an expectation already in 2004 uh, that a country like Ukraine, it's a European country, would want to join the European Union, would have an ambition in which they had declared also to join the European Union one day. And uh, and for the EU, um, after the big enlargement uh, in 2004 and 2007 respectively, that was not an option. There was enlargement fatigue um, uh, amongst majority of member states. So there was yeah, that was the initial policy approach. But then, of course, over the years, uh, you also saw that uh, like the German government, for example, but also French government, they also had a policy of Russia first. And, and that meant that whenever the EU designs a policy uh, towards yeah, Russia, uh, towards a country like Ukraine, it would always be that um, the agreement would first have to be made, like a visa facilitation agreement, for example, first with uh, Russia. But then, of course, the relations between the EU and Russia 
gradually started to decline, especially also 2008, yeah, the, uh, the war, uh, Russia's uh, war with uh, Georgia. Um, and then slowly also relations with the German government and uh, Chancellor Merkel yeah, decreased um, uh, further and further. Uh, and 2009, the EU's Eastern Partnership was already a bit more of a geopolitical policy. It was really meant to you know, create better relations, deeper relations with a country like Ukraine, with Moldova and with Georgia. And then uh, we arrive uh, 2014, uh, when yeah, that was the first low point in EU-Russia relations, annexation of Crimea, a war in eastern part of Ukraine. So member states' reaction here very much, yeah, um, yeah we wanted to react, there were sanctions, um, but they were on a rather limited level. And uh, as a matter of fact, but perhaps we touch upon that later again, it uh, took the plane MH17 to be shot out of the sky for the EU to impose uh, what were back then, you know, for the first time, more heavier economic sanctions. So that is a little bit the background. And also maybe to say in 2014, it was Germany and France taking the lead in the negotiations for peace agreement. Also, peace agreement was reached, Minsk 1, Minsk 2 agreements, uh, but arguably these agreements never really bought peace. Uh, there was always fighting across uh, the front lines. Um, there were uh, incursions, uh, there were violations of ceasefires on a daily basis, serious violations of ceasefires since 2014. Um, but that was an approach, um, a diplomatic approach in 2014. And then in 2022, an approach that then evidently failed um, in retrospect, uh, because the idea in, of the diplomatic approach was uh, not to further provoke Putin to find a peace settlement and to implement it. But then, of course, the invasion showed that for Putin that was not particularly relevant um, and that the diplomatic approach lost credibility. And uh, that then also meant that the countries like Poland or the Baltic states traditionally you know, always argued uh, that security with Russia is not possible, um, that one has to you know, protect uh, or also defend against Russia. And these countries then also started to play a much yeah, more vocal role in the 2022 reaction of the EU to the Russian invasion. Yeah, in terms of context, it is also important to remember that uh, energy has long been played a role in um, the growing conflict uh, between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, it was already after the uh, Orange Revolution uh, when the Ukraine signaled its European ambition. Uh, Russia started changing its policy, its energy policy towards uh, Ukraine, asking Ukraine to adapt to market prices in a very short time span, uh, something that Ukraine was not able to do. And uh, that started a cycle of uh, huge debt from Ukraine to Russia that then Russia weaponized uh, any time it could, demanding the payment of this um, gas. That led to the gas crisis of 2006 and 2009, where Russia already cut uh, supplies to uh, Ukraine and as a result also uh, in some occasions to Europe because the same pipelines that supply Ukraine are the, the, the ones that supply or used to supply most of uh, Russian gas to Europe. And then also in the Euromaidan context, energy was used there by the Russian government 
to convince uh, Yanukovych uh, not to sign the DCFTA, the Deep and Comprehensive Free Trade Agreement, um, by offering discounts on the energy price, which is something that, uh, well, Ukraine would just default without those discounts. When Euromaidan uh, took place, uh, Russia took these discounts off, then Ukraine couldn't pay. And we need to remember that since 2014, uh, Ukraine does not have any gas anymore from Russia because of its inability to pay. So it has um, already been uh, working with reverse flows uh, from Europe. The EU had to intervene uh, almost every year to uh, make sure that at least the transit would be happening. So it has been uh, already a very tense situation for um, uh, a long time. And, and just before we move on, you mentioned Euromaidan, but it probably would be good to also elaborate a bit what this event was. The um, run-up to the Euromaidan revolution was uh, indeed the signature of the Deep and Comprehensive Free Trade Agreement with the EU. This is something that uh, Russia was lobbying the Ukrainian government not to do and instead join the Eurasian economic area. But political elites were divided on that. And then there was a, a, a public movement also for uh, signing this DCFTA and for ousting uh, Yanukovych. Yeah, it was also ended up with the security services, uh, Ukrainian police and, and uh, secret police also intervening. And uh, then there were sniper attacks uh, against the protesters uh, where it's still not entirely clear who sent these snipers, where they came from. But uh, you also had about at least 100 casualties. Uh, they're called the Heavenly Hundred. Uh, so protesters on the Euromaidan who were killed as a result of uh, yeah, these sniper attacks and interventions by the security forces. Uh, so that was also an, an uprising that entailed quite heavy casualties. Uh, so for Ukrainians, it was a very important event. And then it, eventually, of course, Yanukovych uh, fled, <laughs> left the country. I think he fled to Crimea, if I remember correctly. Um, so and that, that, that was really the moment uh, also for, for Ukrainians to make a first big sacrifice in also in their in the historical memory uh, for freedom um, and for democracy um, and also in in some way also pro-european choice uh, that that they expressed so I think that event also sits set quite deep in the in the psyche also of the of the Ukrainian population and when we talk about Ukrainian identity uh, this is something that through already Euromaidan and then uh, also 2014, uh, the war in eastern Ukraine, eastern part of Ukraine, and then of course since the invasion, you know this this Ukrainian identity that wasn't perhaps as consolidated, um, you know 20, you know even 10 years ago, you know through uh, Euromaidan and 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 the ensuring events uh, became uh, much 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 stronger. So Ukrainian national identity is maybe also interesting in that context. Yeah, thank you very much. This brings us to the events from exactly a year ago where Russia did invade Ukraine. And we would like to talk about how this then changed the EU's relationship towards Russia, towards Ukraine. And let's start exactly with the reaction of the EU and the member states towards this conflict. 
Yeah, I just want to give maybe a bit of background also of the initial, you know, days uh, or weeks before and, and also after the invasion, because it's rather quite interesting. Um, for the US, as, as you probably know, uh, had secret, secret service, uh, service information uh, that there was a, the invasion pending. And it was the US already uh, started approximately two months before the invasion to contact member states, uh, the German government, French government, um, other governments, um, and uh, informed them that they have intelligence on a pending uh, Russian invasion. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, in the EU's capital, specifically also in Germany, the reaction was rather relaxed in, in the sense of, okay, we, we don't have that intelligence, we are not quite sure, we don't really expect this. We also don't necessarily feel that it's now already time to take uh, any specific action. But thank you for informing us. Then, of course, governments like Poland uh, or the Baltic states were very much al alarmed and, and they were trying to push the uh, other member states like Germany to well, take action after all, but that also uh, did not immediately result in, in any major change. And that is important uh, in the context of the EU's uh, sanctions then uh, later imposed immediately, almost immediately after the invasion. The uh, Biden administration uh, got in touch with the European Commission and the cabinet uh, of Commissioner von der Leyen. And one advisor in her cabinet already uh, also had very good relations with the US uh, before. He worked in the German foreign ministry, uh, also in relations uh, with, with the US, US uh, transatlantic relations. Uh, then the US and, and the EU Commission, uh, the cabinet of, of von der Leyen, were in touch very frequently. Uh, already two months before the invasion, and they started uh, then to already work out very detailed plans, uh, together also with uh, some officials from the External Action Service, uh, to work out plans for the sanctions. Um, very detailed, of course, also very technical, and it was a very small team, apparently, in the Commission. Um, it was a few commissioners and the cabinet of von der Leyen, and they were meeting with the US colleagues to already make these templates for different rounds of sanctions. And they did so without necessarily consulting member states. I mean, they, they were, you know, informed, but again, you know, they didn't necessarily see an urge, uh, urgency for action. But that was, that was critical, because then at the day of the invasion, the Commission already came up with fully developed templates for what could be, you know, uh, first, second, third rounds of sanctions. The question was just, you know, how, what, how, how many of these sanctions and when, you know, would be imposed. And that was in consultations with member states. And still, even then... You know, immediately after the invasion uh, in, in Germany, in France, there was hesitation. They were thinking, ah, we're not quite sure, um, you know, how far reaching the first packages should be. And then it took, apparently, at least from what we understood in our interviews, discussions with Zelensky. Uh, Zelensky came um, uh, online and joined the European Council meeting. I think that was on the either on the 24th or 25th of February. And apparently, you know, with him saying, you know, I'm not quite sure if you see me again. I think that was something along the lines uh, he said to the member states uh, after this meeting, not sure if you ever see me again, that, that that did something to the atmosphere also in the council. So together with the commission saying, well, here are the templates, you know, just take a decision. Um, then the commission also consulting in very small groups of member states, always making sure that in all consultations in these small groups, there's a member state from, from Central and Eastern Europe. So one of the hawkish member states, so say Poland or one of the Baltic states, always 
in these small negotiation groups to make a point. And that was the moment there then together with Zelensky's speech that then the member states took the historic decision to impose relatively quickly very serious, profound sanctions uh, against Russia in the immediate aftermath of the invasion. There was a lot of debates whether these sanctions would be beneficial actually to stop the war or to hinder the Russian effort to invade Ukraine. To what extent are sanctions beneficial in that sense? To start with and to also uh, contextualize what Giselle uh, was saying, indeed the EU reacted with very strong and quick sanctions, but the energy sanctions took quite some time to um, take effect. And this is quite uh, regrettable because well, Russia is a, a petrostate, a country that relies for a large part of its uh, revenues from the export of gas uh, and, and oil and coal as well. So just think that in 2021, just 45% of um, a loan of the, the government revenues were coming from oil um, and gas. So this is the, the a crucial sector where the sanctions can really inhibit Russia's ability to finance its war machine. But it took some time, about um, eight months, for the EU to actually agree on an embargo of oil imports. This was, uh, well, European was importing about 30% of oil from Russia. But uh, since December, now uh, member states with very limited exemptions have stopped importing oil from Russia. So it's only two months ago because you asked about the effects of these sanctions. That's why yeah, we, we still need to um, see. And uh, still for oil, this is a globally traded commodity, meaning that even if we do not import this oil, Russia can still uh, sell it to other countries um, that uh, do not follow the sanctions. To prevent at least that Russia can um, gain even more, because of the high prices, what um, the EU has been doing, but also with um, only with effect from uh, the past couple of weeks, is to agree with other countries of the G7 on a cap on the price of oil at $60 a barrel, meaning that if a country of the non-sanctioning bloc wants to buy Russian oil, if it pays more than 60 per barrel, European companies or companies that are based on the G7 cannot finance these operations or provide any shipping services. And um, uh, Western companies are really crucial for the shipping industry. So this is a way to at least make sure that Russia cannot get higher revenues from this oil. And the next point is gas. The EU was importing more than 40% of the gas from Russia. That was one of the main source of, um, of revenues and particularly with the, uh, the price spikes since uh, 2021 when already Russia was manipulating the prices. So Russia was getting way more even with the decrease of the, the business there. But in, uh, unlike oil, it is more difficult to replace this gas but still, what is quite remarkable, and also there I would also second Giselle's view that it was the, the Commission's entrepreneurship here just right after the invasion, the Commission adopted, it was just two weeks afterwards, what is called the Repower EU plan, setting the goal of reducing two-thirds of gas imports from Russia by the end of 2022. So that is a quite strong move and, and, and also the idea was to also phase it out as quickly as possible um, thereafter. 
And actually, because of Russia itself, because Russia cut supplies to uh, some EU countries um, already in retaliation for not agreeing to pay in rubles, because that was the um, part of the financial sanctions that Russia could not monetize this money coming from gas in euros. It was asking uh, countries to pay in rubles. Not all countries did. And then Russia already cut supplies. But then there was also the unclaimed attacks on the Nord Stream 1 and 2 that made the Nord Stream unusable. So actually from the summer, the EU is uh, only importing about 10%, where it used to uh, import 40%. So this has really starting to hit Russia. It might uh, still take time, but if at the beginning of the invasion, uh, Russia was gaining more from energy trade than it was spending in the war, now it's not the case. It's spending more than what it gets. The question is whether this can erode domestic support for the Putin uh, regime and, and his ambitions. That's more difficult because conflicts usually tend to produce this rally around the flag effect where just people close ranks on their leaders, but uh, yeah, particularly when propaganda and censorship is deployed towards that goal. But Russia's economy is certainly contracting. The P is falling about 3-4%, so actually losing all the recovery that uh, had taken place in 2021 after the pandemic. And given that the um, Russia's industrial base depends so much on technology import under, and under sanctions, this uh, technology is not available. So the economy will continue shrinking and politics possibly becoming more volatile in the country. It's also quite interesting. Is also to 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 see maybe some yeah indirect effects of the sanctions, but also of course the direct effect of the yeah of the invasion. Um, it's also self-sanctioning of uh, companies. So companies uh, self-sanctioning is also not to be underestimated. A lot of Western European uh, or American uh, firms, big businesses. Um, have withdrawn from Russia, not necessarily because of the sanctions, but simply because of consumer pressure, right, and public opinion, and and then also as a, as a result of self-sanctioning, and that's not to be underestimated. That uh, of course also yeah, means that a lot of investment, a lot of uh, also again high tech and so on is leaving is leaving the country plus the brain drain. Russia is a very big country, but especially also in the big cities, that's driving the uh, economy in, in, in quite an important ways. But in the big capital cities, uh, a lot of the uh, intelligence, a lot of yeah, the brains are leaving and uh, leaving the country. And uh, at the same time, also Russia had had very long time already a problem with population degrowth. And uh, through the war effort, you know, so sending, sending a lot of young men uh, basically to die on the front line, in addition to, you know, the brains leaving the country, especially the younger people. And um, that, again, in the, in the medium and especially in the longer term, that will have an effect. I think uh, one of the last points in the reaction uh, that could be interesting to talk about is membership candidacy of Ukraine in the EU. Would you be able to add something on that in terms of how that changed after the invasion? Mm-hmm. Now, again, one of these uh, yeah, his- historic decisions, you could argue, in the past, membership of Ukraine was out of the question for the majority of member states because of that enlargement fatigue. Uh, also, not to be forgotten, Ukraine has a lot of agricultural land, a lot more than many of the EU's member states. And of course, the EU's common agricultural policy, agricultural subsidies play a very important role uh, for many member states, for example, France, um, uh, but also others. Uh, And there is also reluctance to then admit uh, such a 
yeah, large agricultural-based countries uh, for economic interests, also within the European Union. So it's not just enlargement fatigue. There's serious economic interests, um, agricultural lobbies uh, that are not very much in favor of uh, of the of the candidacy of Ukraine. Uh, but nevertheless, um, the EU took the historic decision to offer candidacy status uh, to Ukraine. Having said this, we also know from the Western Balkans that having the candidacy status is still potentially a very long way to membership. And again, it's member states that have to take decisions. Um, and even, you know, also for Ukraine, it will be uh, very difficult, uh, although um, not impossible, of course, to reform to an extent that they meet the various criteria that the EU has for membership. As the EU said, we don't fast track Ukraine. That was very very clear. Um, but even if Ukraine would meet the criteria, there's still a big question mark of whether the EU does, because the EU's decision-making rules are absolutely inefficient uh, in the context of further enlargement, especially also with enlargement potentially to the Western Balkans that would come at the same time or earlier uh, potentially than Ukrainian membership. But one of the factors, maybe not, yeah, not to be forgotten, is that thing I would I would argue this von der Leyen's yeah, famous phrase to say, you know, Ukraine is one of us, we want them in, uh, certainly is a major shift also in terms of European identity and, and acknowledging that Ukraine is not just a European partner, which is what the EU did up until the invasion, uh, but to acknowledge yeah, it's actually part of Europe, which is perhaps something that the EU might have wanted to say before, but then didn't for various political economic reasons. So that is uh, that is certainly a very, very big event. Certainly there were also alternatives, like the French government was pushing for a European political community, which also exists now. Uh, but that was an alternative scenario where they thought perhaps that's a way to offer Ukraine membership in this European political community, but that didn't fly. So we have a European political community, fine, uh, but uh, the membership was eventually uh, offered uh, to Ukraine. And I think that was also partly uh, because of the Commission pushing for this, uh, preparing an opinion on the candidacy of Ukraine in, in a very short time, which is very unusual for the European Commission. Um, and I think then it was also the, his the historical momentum that played a big role in the EU offering that membership candidacy. To, to round off this discussion on uh, the effects of the sanctions and the effects of your reaction, how, how that changed, what about the other way around? So how, have, uh, how has this reaction, how has the invasion affected the EU? One of the main causes has been the unprecedented energy crisis that uh, the EU is going through that trickles down to all sectors of the economy, but also the political context. And it is certainly not the first uh, energy crisis that the EU has gone through. Uh, in 1973, the sudden embargo of um, oil by the Arab OPEC members also led to the need for oil and even electricity rationing, particularly uh, in the Netherlands, one of the most affected countries back then. But the disruption um, lasted for about uh, one month, even if prices remained high for about a decade. And then also we mentioned already the 2009 gas crisis that left some member states without gas supplies in the middle of winter for more than two weeks. But now we're talking 
about a more structural shock. It's having to replace more than 40% of the EU's gas imports, that's about 100 billion cubic meters, in a very short period of time with a tight global demand and very high prices. So in all these former crises, many member states could continue business as usual, but this time um, the, the war on Ukraine has really triggered a profound reorientation of the energy policy. And here, as in any major shock, we see light and we see shadows. Uh, uh, some of the, the, the shadows is that it took a lot of time to come to a reaction. Also, we saw these softkeeper uh, attitudes, particularly with all member states, trying to find their all unilateral measures to shield consumers from these rising uh, prices rather than finding solutions for the common energy market. Uh, we have to um, here be conscious of, of the, uh, the fact that the EU member states have uh, supported the energy uh, industry and consumers with about 600 billion euros over this year. Uh, so this, compare this to the next generation EU, which was 800 billion. So it's the consequences of these of these policies, the divergent responses, but also yeah, the, the various inflation rates across member states as a result of these different policies are still very difficult to gauge. But uh, we've also seen a nasty discussions about uh, whether and to what extent reduced gas demand. And here some countries saying that, well, they did their homework before, they didn't depend on Russia, why should they cut? So also these solidarity discussions We've also seen some member states trying to carve out some exemptions, for example, in the oil uh, sanctions. There are a few countries, Hungary, um, Slovakia, the Czech Republic, that continue importing oil. There are also other uh, small uh, exemptions. But also when we talk about the sustainability and the energy transition, some countries have opted for switching from gas to coal. Uh, which is much more polluting, or uh, we also see decisions to uh, prolong the nuclear power plants beyond their lifetimes. Uh, just, for example, here across the border, there is um, the Tianga nuclear station, which is in that situation of being prolonged 10 years uh, more than its initial schedule. But um, but I would say that also, yeah, we see we see um, well light or at least areas where the, the EU has been able to uh, take decisions where we were thinking that it wouldn't. There has been a really unified agreement on um, phasing out fossil fuels even quicker than the European Green Deal envisaged uh, at the beginning. So we are advancing, at least in terms of goals, the goals of decarbonization about one decade. Uh, we've also seen attacks on the windfall profits that the companies were making from, from this conflict because of um, the rise of prices. Companies were gaining much more even than, than they expected. But now this, um, this tax is now being used to help the vulnerable consumers. That's also a new coordinated intervention. Um, the EU and here the Commission, again, has played a strong, very strong role in uh, trying to get the missing volumes of, of gas by uh, particularly liaising with the United States to get the, this liquefied natural gas, but also other countries. 
We've also coordinated the replenishment of gas storages, also um, uh, something that was never considered before, or even to jointly purchase gas, the same as there was this idea of um, uh, purchasing the vaccines together. Now there is the idea of purchasing gas to avoid outcompeting each other. Um, uh, and that's also quite uh, remarkable, even if uh, this mechanism is not yet in place. So, um, yeah, uh, lights and shadows. Thank you so much for giving us an explanation on the EU's reaction and also how the sanctions affected Russia, Ukraine and the EU. But this also takes us to our third section where we want to zoom out a bit on the EU's reaction and to dig deeper into the EU's claim to protect the liberal world order and look at the measures the measures it has been taking and does it add up to um, its claim to protect it. Maybe our question here is, has there been a shift from a more liberal to more assertive approach in its reaction towards the Russian invasion in Ukraine? Is there maybe a shift in the values and norms uh, or the claim for the European identity? How would you situate these shifts? Okay, maybe there, there's different ways to approach that question. And maybe let me let me then approach this through the angle of changes that we might see uh, with the EU's identity, the EU's international identity. And I think, as I, as I already mentioned before, we saw these very interesting shifts in you know how the EU defines its identity vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, um, which you know moved from being a European partner towards whom we possibly have not many obligations as such, other than deeper trade relations and uh, perhaps supporting democracy promotion to you know really becoming a member of the European community as von der Leyen said you know one of us Ukraine is one of us which is a very it's a very strong claim a very short, yeah, strong assertion to make to say well this is now part of let's call it the EU's sort of Europe and that is in a way I mean it is for Ukraine, it is it is a change because it's acknowledged as one of Western Europe, uh, so to speak, or the EU's Europe. Um, at the same time, it's a it's still a rather narrow version of obligations and obligations towards um, predominantly, arguably, obligations vis-à-vis -vis white predominantly white Europeans. Um, so in a way, it is an extension of the EU's you know, identity to, to include Ukraine as one of us. But at the same time, it's also a very exclusive or excluding move that fits also in, in the EU's reactions in the past. Um, there's distinctions being made between yeah, Ukrainian refugees, you know, where the EU very quickly acts uh, legislation that allows them to work and study in the EU by tomorrow. Whereas, you know, for other refugees, just thinking about, you know, the Syrian refugee crisis um, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, there was, th these were very different refugees. So, and and you saw also a notion of this in the 2014 reaction that was, you know, the, the annexation of Crimea and then the war in eastern parts of Ukraine, where the EU only agreed on this type three more serious economic sanctions uh, when the plane with EU Europeans was shot down. And it's quite memorable. There was a speech by Franz Timmermans. A Dutch politician uh, in front of the United Nations back then in 2014, who uh, made this argument about the fact, and also you know he repeated that also vis-à-vis -vis, uh, the European Council, looking at you know the EU's member state representatives, 
Imagine these are your parents, your children be shot out of the sky because the majority were Dutch of the people sitting in MH17. And suddenly that triggered something in the reaction of the EU. Never mind that back in 2014, it was predominantly Ukrainian civilians, Ukrainian Europeans <laughs> dying on the ground, Ukraine being attacked. But what triggered the sanctions was, no, it was EU Europeans being shot from the sky. So we see these, these notions of EU Europeans, um, a certain primacy, a certain priority allocated, uh, and certain responsibilities. So for now, Ukraine 2022 became one of us. Um, with a lot of responsibilities, new responsibilities that come with this. Uh, but, but again, it is a very exclusivist um, notion. It's not a responsibility to protect <laughs> strangers around the world. Talk, coming back to your question about the liberal international world order. Uh, no, it is not. Uh, it, is, it, is a very, it's, it's, it continues to be a rather exclusive notion of EU Europeanness. Um, and that is something to take into account I think also in the EU's yeah, approach towards the international world order um, and uh, uh, also looking at the EU's track record, and I'm sure uh, Anna can respond to that in a second as well, um, the EU's track record vis-à-vis uh, -vis its commitments towards international world order have, in that sense, not always been very clear. You know, or it's been with contradictions. For example, as I said, we treat Syrian refugees very different than white Europeans from Ukraine. Um, also, the EU's um, approach to the World Trade Organizations, yeah, since the early 2020s, the EU stopped its moratorium on uh, bilateral trade agreements. Uh, because it started to face resistance from the developing world, from uh, rising powers uh, in the international trade organization. And then it decided that then we do it uh, another way. Uh, we now do bilateral trade agreements, which you can see is a move in a way also to undermine you know, the multilateral uh, trade system. So there are contradictions. Why the change of the situation? It sounds like a very strategic position the EU is taking. One time it is uh, the Ukrainian citizens are one of us, one time it is not. What's the politics behind that position? <laughs> I think there's 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 two, you know, two reasons. Of course, one is, uh, which I think Anna will also talk about, there's geopolitics, right? There's security now. So we have clear security interests um, also of Germany, also of France, even of countries in the south, member states in the in the south of Europe, to, to react, to impose sanctions, also to, to help Ukraine. Um, there's, a, there's a strategic, there's a geopolitical interest, um, there's a security interest. And I think that makes the situation different. But I, as I also said before, I think that also the public, European publics, but also member states, there's this identity dimension, there's a... Uh, witnessing, which was less so in 2014, now a capital, a European capital city is being targeted and you see masses of people, of white <laughs> Europeans, <laughs> again, uh, uh, fleeing, that also unleashed a lot of, also within public opinion, support for Ukraine and expectations also of governments to do something for Ukrainians. And I think that is a very important part of the dimension of the that explains the reaction. So yes, it's politics, but it's also, I think, I would argue it's also identity. 
Yeah, well, um, I am moving to uh, to the big picture. Uh, yeah, we see that that Russia's aggression has furthered a global shift that Giselle also mentioned that has been underway for um, a long time towards the adoption of these more geoeconomic policies. It's because of uh, yeah, the rising powers, but the U.S.-China uh, rivalry, the Trump's uh, unilateral trade policies, and, and, and also a very targeted opposition to uh, key institutions such as the World Trade Organization. So all this has obliged all those countries in between to also position in this um, economic turn. So what we see, uh, also going back to these exclusivist tendencies from a liberal world order that is characterized more as seeing the, the, the benefit of um, economic interdependence, of um, the authority of multilateral institutions, we see these rising concerns um, about the security risks of this interdependence. And uh, also this uh, close concern of relative gains, uh, the positionality where my country stands in in this uh, race, economic race, and this my country first um, approaches. Um, uh, now with uh, with Russia's uh, war, what we see is a further fragmentation of global economy into sort of geopolitical blocks. Those who sanction Russia, the EU, United States, and other democratic market liberal economies. Um, and on the other side, we have China, we have other autocratic and hybrid regimes that do not sanction Russia, but generally also countries that have a more uh, state-led idea of how to run the economy. But there, and going to that, well, whether there is a shift, um, yeah, in the economy, we're observing that actually these, these uh, economic approaches are being less and less different because um, uh, also the EU and the United States are adopting these more geoeconomic policies. It's about protecting um, some strategic sectors from uh, foreign acquisitions, for example, beefing up industrial policy to give an edge to um, your uh, critical sectors. It's about also curtailing the competitiveness of strategic rivals. We have also seen, going back to trade, a range of new instruments to prevent the use of economic coercion by other countries on the EU. So that's um, a move where the EU, I would say, going back to the contradictions, it's in a really difficult situation because on the one hand, the EU has somehow the obligation uh, to protect its economy, its single market. The EU leaders say it all the time, uh, that you should stop being so naive, should also learn to speak the language of power whenever this is needed. And at the same time, the EU wants to advocate for this open economy and, and multilateralism. Eh? But the more distrust there is, the more the um, transactions between countries do decrease and the more we focus on competition and block politics also, well, it, there, there, the least the chances to reconstruct this liberal order. So it's, um, yeah, it's a sort of a geopolitical, geoeconomic self-fulfilling prophecy that it's very difficult to break. And even going back to, to the energy transition, and this is really bad news also for, for this, because um, sorting out uh, a global commons issue requires a lot of cooperation, a lot of cross-border investment. And what we're seeing now is that, well, that these conditions for the diffusion of green technology and this cooperation is not, is not really there. So that also leads to very practical um, issues. But um, yeah, it's, it's a very difficult dilemma and tension to solve.
Well, thank you very much for uh, this insightful talk. And this nicely brings us to the to the concluding segment of our episode, the secondary sources. And uh, for the people who already have listened to Understanding Europe before, already know that this is the segment where our interviewees or guest speakers give us a recommendation for people who are interested in delving deeper into these topics. So what recommendations do you have for us? Okay, well, I have uh, three. So first, uh, I would like to... Uh, alert you to the BBC documentary, which is uh, currently playing. It's called uh, Putin versus the West. Uh, there's three episodes, um, and it covers uh, the 2014 Russian, uh, I say, let's call it the first um, invasion of Ukraine, uh, then the Syria war, uh, where of course also uh, Russian Federation was very heavily involved militarily, and then the the 2022 invasion. And uh, there's a lot of original footage um, and interviews also with heads of state of government uh, who were directly involved in negotiations with Putin um, and so on and so forth. So I think that's super interesting to watch. Uh, then secondly, I have a literary book. Um, it's a book by Andrei Korkov. Uh, it's called Grey Bees. Um, it's about a beekeeper who was caught up in the war in Ukraine in 2014. Uh, and he happens to find himself uh, and his house and his bees uh, living in the so-called grey zone, uh, which is the zone along the front lines, which I mentioned before, the war uh, there in the Donbass uh, never really stopped uh, since 2014. Uh, so that, is, that describes you know, how very ordinary individual who is surviving uh, under these circumstances and eventually takes his bees out of the war zone and trying to find a safer place for them. Um, finally, uh, there's uh, also an article that I wrote uh, in Contemporary Security Policy, uh, which is on the EU's response to the war and the responsibility to pre protect Europeans, which is you know, the theme on identity uh, also that I talked about earlier. Uh, but of course, there's also a lot of very interesting articles written by my colleague uh, Anna Herans on EU energy policy and EU external relations and the energy sector. Uh, but more about that also from Anna. Thanks, Giselle. Uh, um, yeah, well, I, I wanted to uh, to also use this to zoom out a little bit because, uh, yeah, as in all conflicts, when they become protracted, uh, it's all too easy to uh, to just get uh, lost in numbers. Uh? So I wanted to recommend uh, two books, two literary books, uh, or partially literally or autobiographic. Um, that uh, remind us, one, on, on uh, what this individual suffering means, but also both books predate the 2022 uh, aggravation of the conflict. So um, uh, they are all reminding us that this war has been going on for, for eight years uh, now. And the first is um, The Orphanage by Sheri uh, Zadan, which is um, a novel that narrates uh, how life changed with the war in Donbass after 2014. And the second one is the death of a soldier told by his sister, by uh, Olesia Kromechuk. Um, and this is the personal um, experience of a Ukrainian historian who teaches in London, for whom the death of her brother in conflict changed not only her life, but also her way of looking at social sciences and the way we study conflict. So I also thought that it's interesting for um, our students uh, and, and ourselves to reflect about that. But maybe to end on a optimistic note as well. I'd like to recommend a book published by the Center for Economic Policy Research in Paris on rebuilding Ukraine, principles and policies. And this is a, a, a book with more than um, 10 chapters that sketches 
how um, Ukraine, uh, post-conflict Ukraine, can be successfully integrated into the EU, how to reconstruct the energy system uh, to foster a green transition. Um, so that is something that yeah, helps us to consider that this will be possible, hopefully very soon. Thank you so much. All the resources you have mentioned will be linked in the description of this episode. So thank you very much for bringing in also these recommendations. And this brings us to conclude our episode. Thank you, Giselle. And thank you, Anna, especially for those recommendations towards the end. Ending on a hopeful note is nice, especially considering the very solemn realities that are just east of us, not too far away. And to you listeners, thank you very much for listening. Take care. The music for the MD podcast episode has been produced by Stone Ocean. And this podcast episode has been produced, recorded, and edited by Brendan Hogan and yours truly, Sharel Abdullah. Talk to you soon. <laughs>